We are in Genesis chapter 18. Now, we have in front of us this morning two stories from the life of Abraham. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with our church, we've been walking through the book of Genesis, all right, the first book of the Bible. And we've gone, we started in chapter one, verse one, and we've gone through every one of these chapters uh, through the book of Genesis so far. And we've been following recently, this big section in the middle is all about the life of Abraham, okay? And so Abraham has been the primary character uh, for these last several weeks as we've gone through this study. And what we've learned about Abraham is that God chose Abraham and called him to be the one that he was going to kind of set apart from the rest of the world, and he was going to have pour his favor and his grace on Abraham and his future descendants. All right, and in that relationship, Abraham is, is meeting the Lord for the first time, and God is is showing himself to Abraham of who he is, what his character is like, what his heart is like, and what he wants to do. And he's taken Abraham through some, some events of life that were overwhelming, things that were impossibilities that God took Abraham through because God is teaching Abraham about who he is. All right? And as we've seen, now God has made a covenant, a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and now we're in this process where all of that action is starting to happen, all right? And that's where we pick up here in, in, in uh, ver- chapter 18, but here's the thing. Chapters 18 and 19, and we're going to attempt to look at both of them today, um, the, the first story that we're going to look at works on that covenantal promise, but the second story that we look at here today is actually one of the darkest stories of the entire Bible, dark, dark story. It's a story of a group of people that had gone deep into wickedness and sexual sin, which had polluted the land and its people. And God brings heavy judgment upon these people. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. And so many of you, you may have heard that name, if nothing else, even if you don't know this story. Now, I will say this. I don't look forward to preaching sad stories. Okay, I am a, a happy ending sort of person. Um, my middle sister and I, Hillary, we used to, even when I was in high school, we, we used to like to watch AMC, American Movie Classics. That's like the channel with all black and white movies from the 1940s or whatever, where everything ends happily. Um, that's, that's who I am. I, don't, I like books that are happy. I like movies that are happy. I don't like, some of you, my wife, she reads these books that are like, you end and it's like doom and death and darkness. And I'm like, how do you do that? I can't handle this stuff. Like, I went happy. All right? So when I see stories like this, I'm like, ah, oh, I got to read about Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the thing. I do know that God has these stories in the Bible for a purpose. And he has a reason. And there's an important lesson that can be learned through these hard stories, dark stories. And here's some of the things that we have been learning about God through Genesis. We have learned that God loves his creation. We've also learned that God is a God with perfect judgment. And we know that both of those things actually coexist in God. He's perfectly loving and he judges perfectly. And that gets tricky and that gets hard. But even in a story like this where we see judgment falling upon people, we still see glimpses of his heart of love. Now, 
the hard part for us when we go through these kinds of stories is because it's really hard for us to understand how that all fits together and meshes together. How can God say, I love people, unconditionally love people, and then, as we're going to see in a little while, rain fire out of heaven and kill people? How can both of those things happen simultaneously? Is God just schizophrenic, like he's got this personality and this personality? No. And is it because, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament? No. God is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who brings judgment on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is the same God who would send his own son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. All right? And these things do fit. But the problem is this. We're people. Just people. God is God. And there are certain things that we cannot comprehend and we cannot understand because we don't see all of the things that God sees and we don't know all the things that God knows. He is above and beyond us. And there are certain things that we just have to trust. We know he's merciful. We know he's loving. We know he's good. We know he's righteous. We know he's, his judgment is perfect. We have to trust in those things and leave them to God because they're God's. But in both these stories, we're going to see here that God is truly above and beyond us. So let's start with the first one here, um, which is a nice story. And it starts there in chapter 18, verse 1. And it says, and the Lord appeared to him. This is Abraham, remember. We're picking up with Abraham's story. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour. We'll talk about that as in a minute. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, this is kind of a big deal. I don't know if you noticed it, but this is an in-person arrival of God coming to visit Abraham. Right, and that's what it tells us right from the beginning. This is a surprise visit from God. What happens when you get home today and there you walk in the house, sit down, you know, get ready to relax and there's a knock on the door and you open the door and it's God. <laughs> okay, this is a big deal, right? <laughs> this is a big deal. Um, the Lord had appeared to Abraham before. I don't know if you remember it, but back in chapters 12 and in 17, God has appeared to Abraham before. So this isn't the first time that Abraham has, has met God. And this time is a little different. It's still in the same location. The, actually, the other two times that God met with Abraham, it was right here at these oaks of Mamre. But this time he comes with two assistants. And as we're going to see later, these two guys that are with the Lord are angels. All right? And they're going to play an important part of the story in the future. But I believe that Abraham recognized the Lord. 
which explains all this hospitality. Okay, now I do know some scholars say that this was just the cultural norm in the ancient world. All right, that if a visitor would travel, a tra- passerby would come near your tent, that you just welcome them in with, with all this hospitality. All right, some of that is absolutely true. They were very hospitable people. Remember, they, they, they moved, um, they, were, they were Bedouins. They were moving in all these tents and all these locations and they would rely on visitors that are passing through for, for communication and in, information about what's going on and they really went out of their way to try to help each other, okay? And, and that was it. But look what he does here as he's providing this feast for these people. I mean, the amount of food that he makes for these three men is pretty overwhelming. That word, a seah, three seahs, that's, uh, scholars know that's a unit of measurement. It's almost two gallons of flour that, they're, that he's saying, take this and cook lots of biscuits. Okay, lots and lots of bread. Uh, three three uh, seahs, two gallons worth of this. He goes and kills a, a calf. And even a calf, a six-month-old calf is 250 pounds roughly. Okay, that's a lot of meat for three guys, okay? Um, he, and he puts everything into it to try to make the best meal that he can for these guys. And in the last chapter that we'd studied, I don't know if you remember this or not, but it was um, a story where we saw that Abraham had obeyed God by circumcising himself and all the men of his household. All right, God had told him, this is how you're going to mark yourselves, and so he did it in obedience. And now... The Lord is returning for a visit. And Abraham is patiently waiting here because he's expecting some sort of direction from God. God has told him, I'm going to do this incredible thing in your life and in your family and in your history. I've got this piece of obedience I want you to do. And then you'll hear from me. So Abraham goes through the steps. He does what he needs to do. He's finally healed up. And now he's like, when's God going to show up and tell me what happens next? It's right here. And God shows up. He's expecting direction from God, but the word God brings is actually for somebody else. Look at verse 9. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a son, a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Abraham had already been told of God's intention. All right, they, we went through this story where there was this, all this deal with Hagar, the maidservant, and Ishmael, the other son, and all of that. All right, God had already told Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring through Sarah. And Abraham, no doubt, came and told Sarah this. And she's like, are you sure God said that? I don't know about all this. And then the whole circumcision debacle happened. And at that point, Sarah's like, okay, you're nuts. (laughs) You've done what? And you're doing what? How is this? I don't know that you hear anything about God out there. All right. So what happens here is God shows up and he says the same thing that Abraham already knows. 
But this time, he says it so that Sarah can hear it with her own ears. Sarah is right inside the tent door, listening to God speak these things. And when she hears this covenantal promise with her own ears, it sounds ridiculous. Remember, she is an old woman at this point, okay? And, and, and this was a laughable suggestion. Sarah's sitting here thinking, um, God, this isn't how the birds and the bees work, you know? Uh, this is a bit of a joke, but God's not joking. He's serious about it. And the answer to that rhetorical question in verse 14, which says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, the answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever worried that you're going to miss out on what God has for you in your life? Have you ever thought, if I've done this, I've done that. I've got to be on like plan, I'm not on plan A anymore. Maybe like plan E, G, Y, like, I don't know, like, I've, I've really kind of wandered. God has this thing for me, but am I going to actually make it? I mean, I'm the person who, I, when I read in the Gospels where Jesus talks about, you know, there's going to be people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't I, you know, declare things in your name and, you know, work miracles and all this and follow it after you? And Jesus is like, I never knew you. I'm like, oh, like, I get scared of these things, right? Just me. Okay, no, no, no. There's a few of us. I see some heads nodding, right? But here's the thing. The, the problem with that is this is what, what Sarah is thinking here. She's thinking, there's no way this can happen. There's no way this can work out. This isn't how the world works. And here's God throwing out this grand idea of me having a baby at 90-something. But that's not the way things work. But guys, here's what we miss. And this, again, is that human mind. Our human mind says, if I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it, I can't figure it out, then it can't be possible. But that's not God. God is above us and he's beyond us. He's bigger than us. He sees things that we can't see. He understands things that we don't understand. He's God. And we minimize God thinking that God is just kind of like one of us. But he's God. He's far beyond us. He's above and beyond us, beyond us. His plans aren't fragile and time sensitive. He's not in a rush. And he doesn't have a problem with doing what he wants to do. He's not incomplete or incapable of anything. But we have to learn to trust him and his plan. That's what Sarah is going through here. That's what we've been learning in Genesis. And that's what he's teaching Sarah right now. Uh, this is a well-known verse in the book of Isaiah. It says, Isaiah 55 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But not only is God above and beyond us, he is also present and with us. And here in this story, God has come down to reassure Sarah of his plans. He doesn't always do it directly, but there are many ways that God speaks to us and guides us. He involves us in what he's doing. All right. Also in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, he says this. He says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. 
I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Now listen, this is important. We learn about the power, ability, and faithfulness of God by walking the path of life with him. All right? I can give you a sermon. I can tell you that this is how God is. You can read about these things in the Bible. But it's not until we begin walking life with God that our faith actually takes, gets traction in our hearts. We can know about something, but until we experience it and begin moving in that way, it's really hard for us to make the, the step in believing these things. We can hear testimonies of other people about God did this for me. God did that for me. We're like, okay, that's nice. That's good information. But it's not until he does it for you that you can really, ah, now when I hear those testimonies, well, yeah, he did that for you because he did the same thing for me, right? Sarah's faith was incomplete at this point. She'd heard Abraham, her husband. She'd now heard the Lord, but even still, she was a little unsure and she would be unsure until that belly started growing. <laughs> and then she would be like, okay, this is for me. And this is really happening. The word I think for us in this is no matter where you find yourself today, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Like it says right there. Okay, but now we move right in to this second story. And we pick up in verse 16. And here's what it says. Then the men, so they've had that conversation with Sarah. They've squared those things away. God has again revealed to Sarah, this is what I'm going to do. But now we're shifting gears. And in verse 16, it says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This is the Lord kind of thinking to himself here. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, you might not be sure about how that paragraph works. When, when Moses wrote down the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us that Moses was the author of this book. He did it with God. All right, God spoke to Moses in radical ways. And in those conversations that, that Moses had with God, God gave him insights into certain events. That's the only way we know what we know here in this paragraph. That's the only way we know God's thoughts of what he's thinking, how he's processing through here, is because God told Moses as he's writing it down, this is what I was thinking. This is why I showed Abraham what was going to happen in Sodom. He explains that to him. And the reason was, it tells us right there, so that Abraham would be able to teach his children and household about the dangers of sin and the reality of judgment. 
the dangers of sin and the reality of judgment. Second Peter and Jude in the New Testament, both of those books refer back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they say the same thing. They say the reason that God did what he did in Sodom was that it would be an example for, for the future generations. Now, obviously God didn't need to show up in person to get this information. He's God. <laughs> he knows all things. But this was a final test for these people from this community. And it would serve as an example to Abraham and his descendants all the way through history to us today. It's an example of what sin can do when it's not dealt with. All right? And what does he say here about it? He says, the outcry was great and that their sin was very grave. Well, who's crying out? Who's making this outcry? Probably those that had been hurt or injured or exploited by the people in these towns. And what we learn from that is God is listening and paying attention to humanity. Abraham, when he hears this, when he says, uh-oh, when God's talking about judgment and when God's saying he's looking into this to see what's happening here, Abraham makes the right deduction and says, he's about to destroy this place. He's about to wipe these people out. And, and we see that that's the case because of the questions he asks here starting verse 22. Let's read it. So the men, the, the other two men, the two angels, they turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, I'm really thankful that Abraham asked that question. <laughs> because that's the same question I would have wanted to ask. Abraham had been learning about the character of God. He'd been learning about who God is and how God does things. And one of the things that he'd already picked up was, you're just and you're righteous. So you being just and righteous, would you actually wipe out righteous people with wicked people at the same time? That doesn't seem right. And so he brings it up to God. And God says, you're exactly right, Abraham. You're learning. And no, if I can find 50 people in this whole city that are righteous, I'll spare everybody. For their sake, I'll take care of those 50 people. It's not a blind wrath that we see here from God. We see amazing mercy of God, but we also see careful judgment. He's paying attention to every single person in these cities. In verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose Five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 
are found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham's testing his luck. This is working so far, so he keeps going. He said, verse 31, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Abraham wanted to test God's limits on mercy. Now, one of the things that we know about the city of Sodom is that Abraham's nephew, who he had traveled around with for a long time, Lot, they separated their ways several chapters ago. If you guys were part of that story, you remember this. They kept growing their families and households kept getting bigger and bigger. Finally, they're like, we can't even stay in the same area, region anymore. We have to actually split up because there's so many of us. And so he let Lot choose. Hey, Lot, where do you want to go? Look around and wherever you go, you go that way, I'll go the other way. And Lot chose to head towards Sodom. It was this this river valley um, right there in the Jordan River Valley. And it was lush and there was lots of good farmland and places for the animals. And so Lot said, well, that place is amazing. I'm going to go there. So he said, go. So when Abraham now is here standing at the, the lookout point across these cities and talking to God, he's bringing this up because he knows my nephew is living over there. And let's see, I know my, my nephew's married. He's got a couple daughters. Maybe they're about marriage age by this point. So maybe there's, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 of them in their household. So I got to have this conversation with God to say, hey, how many righteous people is okay? And he whittles it down from 50 all the way down to 10. And he's like, okay, we should be safe there. There's got to be 10 of them. I mean, at least Lot and maybe his family and a couple others somewhere in the city. It's all good. And I think it's wrong to think that God was fed up with Abraham asking these questions, as I've heard some pastors tell it. You know, it's like they picture Abraham as this kind of petulant little kid. Well, why, why, why? And he keeps getting another, well, what about 30, 25, 10, you know? I don't think that's the case. And I don't think God's like, fine, yeah, even 10. No, that's not it. That's not what we see here. In fact, God's just patiently, yeah, mm -hmm, for 50, no problem. I'll save everybody. 40, yep, 30, mm -hmm, 20, 10, you got it. He's telling Abraham some important things about who he is. He is a God of mercy. He wanted Abraham to understand how seriously he was paying attention to each of these inhabitants and also how generous he would be with his mercy. Guys, our God is looking for ways to bless us, not curse us. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says it this way. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Yet, he is also serious about judgment for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, if we zoom out of all this right now, it's kind of hard sometimes when you get buried into like Genesis and the stories of this. It's hard to see the whole picture of the Bible. But the big picture 
is that the Bible teaches us that sin, we all share a sin nature. We all deal with sin in our lives. Every one of us, if you're a human, you deal with sin. From the oldest to the youngest of us, human beings have a sin nature. All right? And sin has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. And ultimately what we see is that we all need a savior. And God provided the solution in Jesus. who sacrificed himself to take the punishment for our sins upon himself. That's the big picture. But back here in Genesis, we're going to see things happen a little differently. Okay, now we're going to read a big section here. Get ready. In chapter 19. Hang in there, guys. We're, we're, we're going deep, all right? We're going to read 29 verses right now. I hope you're, you're ready to, to either listen or read along. Here's what it says. Chapter 19, verse 1. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, this is Abraham's nephew, remember, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. Now, this is a kind of a common thing. Travelers would come through these cities and towns. Sometimes they would just be, again, it's this, this you've heard of southern hospitality. Well, this is near eastern hospitality, right? And they just welcome people in. Say, hey, come on, you can stay at my house. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you in the morning and send you on your way. But that would take time and there's a lot of that. And so if people were in a hurry, a lot of times what would happen is they would just sleep around the town square. It was kind of the safest place to be. All right, out of the wilderness, in the gates of the city, and they'd, they'd take a, a, their rest there and then, and then move on. All right, now it says, but, in verse 3, but he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, just giving you insight here. When they say that we might know them, this isn't like a welcoming party of, oh, we want to get to know these guys. Okay, This word is actually, they, they want to rape these men. All right, that's what's being said here. In verse 6, And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, and this is as speaking of wickedness. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has come as become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? These are the angels now speaking to Lot. Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar. And the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. All right, let's briefly walk back through this. Wickedness had entirely permeated these cities. Abraham's nephew Lot knew that he was in a wicked place. And, and according to Peter in the New Testament, it was weighing on his soul. 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says, Righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so for that reason, it seems Lot was hanging out in the gate of the city, waiting for people to come through to try to save some people from what was going to happen in this town. And that seems like what he was doing there. Um, it was an extreme case. But um, still, all these events started taking place. I, I, I do have to say, the disregard for women here, even Lot's own daughters, is appalling, but it's also, it was part of the, the characteristic of the culture. Wickedness had distorted the entire society. The populations of these towns were consumed with sexual lust. So much that even when they're struck with blindness, they're, they're still groping for the door. Can you imagine how far gone these people were? And it says here that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by sulfur and fire from the sky. So what do we see here? We see a supernatural disaster brought on by God in judgment of the people. I mean, in, in the story of Noah and the flood, we saw God bring judgment on the whole earth. But here, it's localized in this valley. Um, this, this week, I, I read a pretty interesting um, scientific uh, research paper that was published in, in 2021 in uh, Nature magazine. I think I have a link to the, 
this if uh, not the map yet did I have a did I have a, a a website link do you see a website link up there no okay well you can email me if you're interested in this study uh, you can probably look it up after I tell you some about it so um, recent this is a very recent archaeological um, finding and it's a, a, a guess, a postulation that this kind of event that's described here in the Bible was caused by something called a cosmic airburst. All right? Now, some of you may know about cosmic airbursts. I did not, but I do now, let me tell you. A cosmic airburst is a meteor exploding above the ground. So it doesn't come all the way down and hit the ground. It just blows up right before it, when it gets close. Um, there was actually a recent one, somewhat recent, in 1908, in Siberia, um, in an area called Tunguska, Siberia. And what happened is this meteor entered into our atmosphere. The cosmic airburst happened. It blew up. And thankfully, where it hit, um, or where it didn't hit, but where it exploded, was in a very remote part of Siberia. There was only probably around 30 people in the whole community area. They were reindeer um, herders. So what happened is this explosion happened in 1908. It knocked all the trees down. I mean, miles of trees down flat. You can see pictures of this. They actually have them in their black and white pictures, but from 1908. It killed all the reindeer. It killed the people that were in the area. It melted rocks. It did all these things, this, this, this event, all right? And this scientific report that just came out in 2021 has been studying a, a place um, in Jordan, and that's where this map comes back into play, all right? So um, can you click that light? Thank you. So... Um, We've been talking about this area a bit. This is zoomed in um, into kind of the Canaan area. This is the Dead Sea. The Jordan River comes all the way up here and goes all the way up here to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent a lot of time. Jerusalem is right here. The Mediterranean Sea is over here. All right. Now, what we've talked about with, with Abraham is he spent a lot of time down in this region through here. Okay. And historically, um, I think there's, well, the, the place that we're going to talk about here today is this dot right here, Tal al-Hamam, all right? And that's the place where this, this archaeological study has been excavating. Now, traditionally, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're wiped out here in Genesis. We have no evidence of where these cities were, but traditionally, people have always assumed that they were kind of down here at the southern end of the Dead Sea. We knew they were on this side of the Jordan River, somewhere in here. All right, but this study is actually up here of this particular area, Tal al-Hamam, okay? Now, uh, let's see that next map too. So the, the, the idea here is that they believe that they've found evidence of another one of these cosmic airbursts, all right, for this city, this Tal al-Hamam. Now, this one right here is how big the Tagunska, the one in Siberia that I was telling you about, how big that one was. This one, they have found evidence that it was bigger, and it actually covered this entire region of the Jordan Valley, all right? Now, get a load of some of this. Well, here's, here's some of the things that they've discovered. You can come back up with the lights. Um, for one thing, this city, this um, Tal el-Hamam, was destroyed around 1650 BC, which is the Middle Bronze Age, which also happens to be the time of Abraham. Interesting. The evidence of catastrophic leveling is throughout this city. Sheared walls, pulverized mud bricks, melted pottery, heat fractured stones, and high temperature burning. Melted minerals, something called shocked quartz, and diamondoids, and these other things. 
Now, you might say, well, cities, weren't they like burned with fire and torn down by war all the time? Yes, all the time. You go through all these archaeological digs and that happens over and over. They tear down a city, they knock it down, they build on top of that city, they knock it down, they build on top of that city, and there's all these layers in archaeology of it. Here, however, they have not found a single um, artifact of war. No spearheads, no arrow tips, nothing. And the extreme temperatures that it takes to melt rocks and do some of these things cannot be done by just fire. Okay? The other interesting feature is there's a layer of extremely high salinity at the destruction layer. Salt. They're like, well, this is weird. What in the world could cause this? Well, what they've discovered now is an airburst over the Dead Sea, which is very salty, um, that actually could have coated the area with hypersaline water, resulting in salt covering everything and destroying agriculture for centuries. Pretty fascinating. As a kid, when I heard this story, I remember hearing about Lot's wife turning around and immediately turning into a pillar of salt. At least that's how I pictured it, right? They're like running up the mountain and she looks back and all of a sudden, salt. Um, Couldn't understand that. Interestingly, though, here, that's probably a description of what happened to all the people that were exposed to this catastrophe, being instantly killed. Pretty fascinating stuff. You guys can read it on your own. To me, I'm convinced. That's got to be Sodom in my mind. Maybe not, but this is what's, what's going on right now. So here's, here's bringing this back, though, into that's interesting, but how do we process all this? How can God do this? How can a God of love and a God of mercy do these things? Well, guys, I wish I had a simple, clear answer for you, but it's a complicated answer. The complicated answer is God's above and beyond us. And there's some real things that are happening here, and his judgment is perfect. And what God has told us is that sin always, 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 always leads to death. It might not be immediate death, like this was, but sin leads to death. And just like cancer will continue to devour healthy cells until there are no more cells left to devour, do you, do you understand that's what happens when, when, we, when our bodies are fighting cancer? Cancer just starts eating us until it's eaten all of us and we die and there are no more cells. Guess what happens when that person dies? The cancer dies too because there's nothing left. That's what sin does in us. There's nothing left. A sin left unchecked will devour a soul. Sin is serious. You see this all the time in in extreme drug addiction, right? People that are, are hooked on something and they just can't get off of it. And they're destroying their bodies, they're destroying their relationships, they're destroying everything about themselves, but they they're now powerless over it or under it. It's controlling them. And the citizens of this valley had been completely overcome by their sin. And God brought judgment on them. We as humans are always moving, either away from God or toward God. Life doesn't stand still. And sexual sin is just one of the categories of sin with this kind of destructive power. You know, the three, the three big ones that are often referred to that take people down all the time, money, sex, and power. Um, uh, an author named Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And what he's talking about in those, he says, those are the three biggest idols that humans have and always have 
created in their hearts. And what he talks about is the, what happens when we take something that's good. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with sex or power. But when we take these things that are good things and elevate them in our hearts and minds to become ultimate things, they're idols. And what happens is we begin worshiping that idol and nothing else matters but that idol. These people can go blind, but they're still going to chase after their sexual desire. They just lost their eyesight. They're blind and they're groping at the door because the idol has overtaken them and controlled them and ruled them. Idols promise life, but they lead to death. And when we allow sin in our lives, our souls are being eroded. Even when we dabble in sin that we think is no big deal. Like everybody does this. That's the people of Sodom. They're like, yeah, you know, this is what we do. But we're doing damage to ourselves. In my own life, I've seen when I've struggled with sins that have kept me from the spiritual life and health that Jesus has come to give me. I've, I've seen this at work. And here's what I've learned to be true, is that these sins can poison us just enough to take away our appetite for the things of God. A lot of times people wonder, hey, why can't I grow spiritually? Maybe I just wasn't made like a spiritual person. There's some people that seem so spiritual and they're praying and they're in worship and they're like, love God and they hear things from God and they're always pulling things out of scripture and they're just like, they're extra spiritual people. And me, I guess I'm just a regular person. I don't have that kind of ability. Here's what I found. When we have these little, little sins that we drag along behind us, these little sins that we've got in control, it, we think. And we're, we're doing this sin management thing. Ah, uh, you know what? What if I have an extra couple drinks? It's not going to bother me. Ah, uh, but have you had a problem with drunkenness in the past? Yes, I have. Then just stop. Ah, uh, but you know. Or, oh, what's the big deal if I look at this website? I do this thing. Nobody's really going to know. What's it hurting? I'm not going to pay them money or something, you know? All these little things. We've got all these little things. But here's what it does. They're They're idols. They're little idols in our hearts. But what's happened is we get just enough to keep our appetite for the things of the Lord at bay. It's like snacking between meals, right? It's like it's time for dinner, but not quite time for dinner. So I'm going to have another cookie. <laughs> Why not? You know, what did your mom always tell you? You're going to ruin your, your dinner. It's true. This is what happens here in this case. We, keep, we let these little sins keep reaching into us and, and, and satisfying just enough of our appetites that we get pushed and we get out of, out of shape where we're supposed to be. And we're wondering why we're not growing spiritually. We wonder why we're not hungry for the things of God. But instead, all we can think about is this little idol always bothering us. Oh, well, if I get in a little extra money, I can do this. Get a little of that, I can do that. This is what's happening but God wants us to be free from the power of sin and death in our lives. And as we walk in the Spirit, we crucify those desires that want to consume us, they want to kill you, and then we see the growth happen and continue. But we've got to deal with the sin that we have. We've got to flush it out of our hearts and our lives. Now, we're almost done. We're almost done. Hang, hang with me here. I wish that there was a happy ending to this story because I like happy endings to stories. But there's not, all right? And here we read the last few verses of this chapter. Verse 30 says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar. Now he's lost his wife. 
He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost um, everything that he's known. He goes up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. He'd just seen what had happened to Sodom. He knew that the people of Zoar were wicked too. And he thought, you know what? I, I, I don't even want to stay here. This could happen again. He's got PTSD. He cannot, cannot, cannot handle this, experiencing this again. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And the next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Sadly, the perversion of the culture that they lived in followed them out of Sodom and Gomorrah. These girls were the product of what they'd been raised in, and they just continued in wickedness. We want to run from our problems, but what happens when we are the problem? What happens when we carry that sin within us? We can say, oh, I just need a new location. I need a new group of friends. I need to, you know, move to a different city, something. Maybe that'll fix it. Well, here's, here's the thing, guys. Even if you feel that way, don't lose hope. Because the good news of the gospel is that we're not doomed to stay in our sins. You may not be able to overcome your sins on your own. But remember God? He's above and beyond us. And he has the power to transform us and to rescue us. He has the power to heal us and to cleanse us if we'll come to him. And there's all sorts of things that we can struggle with and wrestle with and get hopeless and feel like there's no reason to live. There's no reason to move forward. I can't get out of this. I can't break out of this. God can do it. And not only that, he's merciful and he's willing to and he wants to. He wants to give us new life. He can break the chains of addiction, the patterns of sin, the wicked tendencies that we have. And through his power, we can put off our old nature and receive a new one. Two more verses and we're finished. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Don't go thinking, oh, God's just looking for the next Sodom to blow up. No, that's not what his desire is. His desire is that no one would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. Ezekiel 18.32, he says it clearly. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So what does he say? So turn and live. What are we called to do? We repent We turn away from our sin. We throw ourselves on God's mercy and ask him to heal us and change us. Because if you're still in bondage to sin, it is slowly killing you. 
It's slowly killing you because that's all it can do. That's all sin does. It kills. And Jesus came to set captives free. He's greater than our sin. He's above and beyond all things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.